This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon, everyone. So, there's been a lot of talk uh, about infrastructure in, in Congress over the last several years. Um, most of which relates to how much money the federal government is spending, but how the federal government spends its money and under what requirements and guidance that money gets spent is just as important. So in this briefing, as Jamie uh, mentioned, you're going to hear the word resilience uh, frequently. And resilience is an increasingly important concept in infrastructure planning and design, I'm sure as many of you know, we use the term here to mean the ability of individuals, communities, the private sector, and the physical assets that they own uh, to adapt, recover, and respond to disruptions, both in the form of shocks as well as long-term stresses. So adding the property of resilience into the requirements for planning and design of infrastructure is going to change the way you're going to count benefits and, and costs of these projects. With this presentation, we'd like to begin, I'd like to begin by, by placing the discussion about resilient transportation infrastructure and the broader context of federal infrastructure policy, as well as uh, trends in spending. So targeting is another theme you're going to hear in this presentation. Um, in, in prior RAND work, which you, I think many of you have this uh, report here, uh, we took kind of a 30,000-foot view of federal infrastructure funding, finance, and policy as it relates to not only transportation but also water. And one of the bottom lines of that report was that simply spreading federal funding around is not going to be a cost effect. Is not going to be cost effective, really, in fixing infrastructure. Congressional action, action really needs to be focused and aimed at national priorities and doing what states and local governments and the private sector cannot or will not do. That's how you define you know, the federal role. So spending is clearly one way the federal government can make a difference. But the policy matters a lot. And guidance on how the money is spent critical to shape is really critical to shaping the kinds of projects uh, <clears throat> that get built and the investments made at the state and local level. So... There are many reasons, of course, to be investing in resilient infrastructure. Um, it's, it's the, and at the top of the list, really, is because there are potential benefits to be captured and costs to be avoided, costs of disruption from uh, shocks or, or longer-term stresses, uh, to, compared to just business as usual to, in planning and engineering. Resilience is more than just coping with sea level rise, extreme precipitation, uh, and heat waves. It also means the anticipation of uh, coping with cyber attacks, increased congestion, economic, and then also on the more positive side, economic aspirations uh, for, for regions to uh, alleviate uh, inequities uh, across communities uh, and improve, uh, improve the quality of life. So, as Jamie mentioned, we're going to cover um, some, a couple topics here. I'm going to uh, first 
and I give a big picture view of public spending on infrastructure, uh, just to emphasize really the critical role that states and local governments play. Uh, Sarah will explain how the concept of transportation resilience applies to infrastructure, communities, and individuals, how preemptive investments in resilience can produce a broad array of benefits to communities and can help avert some of those costs from the shocks and long-term stresses. At the end of the talk, we'll talk about uh, some policy options for Congress to consider uh, to further incentivize and support investments in more resilient infrastructure. So I'll start with a, a chart on spending, uh, which is a good way to kind of get grounded here on uh, what, what the, the, the larger picture is in terms of uh, federal, the federal role. Um, this is showing spending, capital spending, well, all spending, both capital and operation and maintenance spending for all levels of government, federal, state, and local spending from 1956 to uh, 2017. This is Congressional Budget Office data that we're plotting up here. Um, and what you see with the blue line is all public levels of spending for both transportation and water infrastructure. These are two sectors where public uh, investment dominates. Very little private sector rel uh, investment relative to the, um, the public sector spending. Um, so the blue line you can see is going up and up and up until around 2003, and then it starts tailing off. There's a little bit of a bump at the time of uh, following the uh, an initial financial crisis when Congress pumped a lot of money into infrastructure there uh, with the stimulus package. The gray line you see is on a pretty steady trajectory. And by the way, all these numbers are have been adjusted for inflation. These are 2017 uh, dollars and expressed in billions of dollars on the uh, left uh, on the left axis there. Um, <coughs> Whether that's the right slope for that line, whether that line should have gone up much faster for operation and maintenance is not an easy thing to be able to determine, but uh, it, it has at least been increasing. The orange line is showing capital spending, and there you see much more unevenness, and a lot of it relates to Congress. And when there have been pro programs that have come in, 1956, not uh, incidentally, was the year that the federal highway program was initiated. So that was pumping up federal, particularly federal spending. Uh, you can see some other bumps around 1972 or in the, in the 70s. That's when uh, the Clean Water Act was passed and the construction grant program came online and, and so on. But you do see a tailing off here. So... If you take that, uh, in this graph, if you take that blue line that I had just shown of total federal, state, and local spending and break it apart, here we're showing separately state and local spending in the orange line and just federal spending on the blue line. And uh, you can see that states and local governments, at least at, at current time here, uh, outspend the federal government by more than three to one. Um, and in fact... That actually, that proportion has pretty much stayed stayed the same uh, from from the early days. Now, many of those federal dollars are actually spent by state and local governments through the federal highway program, for example. That's mostly a pass through. Um, so this is in some ways uh, understating the amount of spending that's going on at the state and local level. 
So this slide just picks this apart now even further, just focused on transportation spending. It's taking the water piece out of it. And I wanted you to just, I wanted to show this just to show how the money in fact flows and again, uh, emphasize the dominance of state and local government. So on the left side, uh, of, you can see the funding sources that are originating at each level of government, uh, with the most at the state level followed by local, then the feds. Um, and as I said, very little, uh, funding from the federal government is spent directly on the on uh, projects, that money is getting passed through. Oops, I'm sorry. That money is getting passed through to both the state governments and to local governments. So in combination, you see it's pretty much about uh, evenly split between states and local governments doing making all the big decisions. So that's why it's so important. This is where the decisions are being made on, on planning, on designing the projects, maintaining the projects. And they're mostly doing it, though, under federal standards and uh, federal guidance. So in this uh, report that uh, we, we published at the end of 2017, we made some general uh, uh, conclusions and, and set forth some, some general guidance for, for Congress as as Congress embarks, whether in a grand scale or an incremental way, on uh, changes in infrastructure policy. Um, setting priorities is one of the hardest things for Congress to do when it comes to infrastructure. There are needs throughout the country. These needs differ from region to region, and federal policy needs to uh, account for those, those differences. At the same time, there's some very large trends underway that, that ought to be shaping federal funding and standards as we go forward. And it's not just climate change. There are also technological changes like autonomous vehicles and major energy transformation that's underway. And we've got a lot of social change underway as well as income inequality grows deeper and gaps between rural and urban economies grow. So... While changes may, will necessarily be incremental, we still need a broader national vision that not, ensures not only the federal money is going to be spent effectively, but also that federal policy is sending coherent signals to states and communities to build infrastructure to meet current and future needs, not just patch up or rebuild the old stuff built in the last century or two in some cases. So we also uh, wanted in this in our previous report we emphasized this need to make resilience a condition of federal capital spending, and uh, this is just to reinforce the theme that you're going to hear Sarah talk about more in the context of transportation project planning. As long as the federal government is going to be making investments, whether it's direct or indirect, in infrastructure, it should be doing so with the aim of increasing resilience. Uh, among the other benefits that that infrastructure uh, is intended to produce. So reducing impacts of extreme weather events has the potential to reduce impacts uh, of, of uh, you know, and not only reduce the impacts of specific events, but also uh, reduce federal disaster assistance that, that may be needed there. Um, investors in infrastructure, whether it's public or private, need to be pulling in the same direction to make communities more resilient. It doesn't work to just do one resilient project here and have the rest of the community not be prepared for whatever the shock or, or disruption might be. 
That's why federal policy is so important. Federal incentives to states and local governments could be in the form of reduced costs of financing for projects, meeting resilience standards, could be more favorable grant and loan terms. There are any number of uh, ways you could do that. Having said that, it's easy to say, but it's much harder to do. And Sarah's now going to uh, talk about what exactly it means to, to plan for resilient infrastructure. Thank you, Deborah, and thank you all for being here. So, as was mentioned in the beginning, the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act, otherwise known as the FAST Act, which was signed into law in December of 2015, requires planners to consider resilience and specifically surrounding stormwater. However, it doesn't really require, it doesn't consider how to provide guidance on how to operationalize this resilience in the planning process. So in our research project um, for the Transportation Research Board, we looked at how you consider incorporating resilience into decision-making processes for long-term planning, and we offered suggestions really on how you operationalize that. So it's important to remember that the transportation system in one community is made up of a network of assets, such as roads, bridges, tunnels, a workforce, but it's also connected to another community and another. And because there is interconnection across communities, infrastructure and planning decisions made in one community can have cascading effects on another. So resilient infrastructure really provides capacity to the system to mitigate impacts from disruptions through things like alternate routes, additional mode choices, or even having an ample workforce to aid in a disaster. Resilience and transportation infrastructure should really consider how transportation is a system of systems and that the functionality of the transportation infrastructure has impacts and provides benefits to social, economic, and environmental systems in communities over time. So this is a representational figure. This is not data. This is representational of how investments in infrastructure projects in communities that target aspects of resilience can create benefits. Projects can consider, for example, elevating a road, which focuses on the ability of the infrastructure to absorb flooding, and that's during a disruption. However, that does not create benefits during times of business as usual because there is no flooding. Planners can also focus on projects that create redundancy in the network by adding more routes, allowing some portions of the roads to remain open, during a disruption, and that can have benefits both in times of disruption and in times of business as usual because it alleviates congestion potentially, as one example. So really, resilience involves considering how to prepare for, mitigate, and prevent some disruptions, which is as important as recovering quickly from an event such as a hurricane. So as I started mentioning, while transportation infrastructure is largely focused on the safe movement of goods and people, it also has many benefits to other systems. It's a conduit, the infrastructure itself is a conduit for people to continue to go to work at their businesses, which can increase economic productivity. And this is beneficial because we know that currently 40 to 60% of small businesses do not reopen after disaster. Also, it's a conduit for people to seek medical care at their local clinic, attend educational classes at their institutions, or even socialize with members of the community, increasing their overall social capital. 
And then one last piece is that it is a conduit to ensure that the natural environment can manage things like water flow without disruption based on the transportation infrastructure design itself. So as was mentioned in the beginning, we are going to define resilience. As a concept, it can seem overwhelming because transportation planning in one area is going to have different and evolving challenges from another area in the U.S., but we define it in order to address it. So as was stated before by Deborah, across geographic areas, transportation resilience is really about the ability for the system to adapt, recover, and respond to a variety of disruptions caused by either extreme weather or other events like congestion due to population growth. And resilience really involves focusing on aspects of the system that will help transportation infrastructure continue to function during a disruption, but also in times of business as usual. In order to build resilience and know where to target investments, we focus on this approach called area that you see here. And it focuses on a few capacities. One is the capacity to absorb a stress such as a shock. I'm sorry, such as congestion, which can be a shock to the system or a stress. Or restore services as quickly as possible with a skilled workforce, such as opening a main thoroughfare after flooding. And then there's also a piece which is about equitable access, where everyone in the community, including those who are the most vulnerable, such as those who might be geographically isolated, in need of special services, or lacking the economic resources to pay for a transportation service fee. And finally, it considers the capacity of adaptation or the ability to change a response, such as rerouting traffic on certain roads in the transportation network, which can allow for that continued functioning of the system during a disruption. So this approach is really something that can be considered by transportation planners when they are conducting scientific assessments, such as economic impact analysis, cost-benefit analysis, life cycle cost analysis, <clears throat> assessments like that. But they can also leverage measures that really kind of key into the key trade-offs across projects. And these trade-offs can inform decision makers on the alternative strategies to consider when targeting solutions that can really help achieve resilience in the system. So it's really about, by understanding what capacities the transportation network has, the planners can choose between these capacities. Also, there are three types of investments to think about. And it's important to remember that not uh, the most cost-effective thing is not necessarily targeting all aspects of infrastructure all at once. Rather, it's about prioritizing what investments are most timely. So on the first, on the left side, you see it's really about investments that can be made to enhance segments of infrastructure which are most critical to withstand expected disruptions. And second, it's about investing in new infrastructure that incorporates codes and standards that are meant to withstand extreme conditions that are increasing in frequency. And third, while there is a need for operations and maintenance costs on existing infrastructure, if it's known that that infrastructure is not expected to face a disruption, it's good for planners to consider the, the costs and benefits if that infrastructure is maybe in the middle of its life cycle or at the end of it already, because those codes and standards that which it was built for were made for codes and standards from decades ago for different disruptions, not quite as extreme. So finally, I'm going to end on an example here. 
about with everything that I've talked about. So transportation planners really want to consider how to build their infrastructure back better, build it better, and you know for future conditions. We know that communities are a hub for critical services that are accessed by transportation infrastructure. In resilient infrastructure, there would be a network of roads and the transportation services ideally would not be disrupted during an event, or if they were, it would be a quick turnaround to get things running again. So in this example, we have a very notional community and there is a hospital represented by the figure in blue. And we also know that the community is prone to flooding. And this community, the planners also know that two roads are particularly critical for accessing that hospital, noted by the words there. But we also know that one of these roads, indicated with the water symbol, is expected to be flooded. It faces exposure to disruption. So, and it also is known to have high levels of congestion. So this is really where planners can think about the alternative strategies to consider based on the assessments, including the area approach or those capacities. For example, planners can consider if the capacity to absorb or harden this road by adding another lane to deal with congestion or elevating the road is ideal to deal with flooding. But there may be other options that are more cost effective. We also know that flooding often brings debris that can come onto roads or infrastructure so it's good to have planners who can restore capacity by having an able workforce out there to move debris quickly. Another option is to con consider the adaptive capacity. This is where this, this community should really have roads that, first of all, exist that can provide alternative routes to the hospital. And that way, those alternative routes, it would be good if they're in a place where there is not going to be as, as much exposure to flooding in the long term. Um, so finally, the last piece we talked about was equitable access. If those different capaci capacities are considered, if they're invested in, it's more easy to achieve equitable access with these pieces of infrastructure and to allow continuing functioning, even during a disruption, with people to have the opportunity to access the medical services they need to get to that hospital. So to sum it up, these are the types of considerations you would make with the area approach related to targeted investments that can really help the network be more resilient overall. So thank you again for your attention. I'm going to turn it back to Deborah, who's going to talk through some of these options for the future. Thank you. Besides the power of the purse. Congress, as we've talked about, has a number of levers it can pull to reinforce the movement toward building more resilience into our public infrastructure. And our focus here is really on these, these policy options, which come in three flavors, standards, incentives, and research and, and data. So as a first order of business, there is a real need to reconcile the various and inconsistent resilience standards that, that now exist across the federal agencies like the Federal Highway Administration, the Army Corps of Engineers, HUD, the Defense Department, EPA. Everyone's got their own, their own standards and requirements. This all comes back onto local and state and local governments who are trying to do the right thing by making doing more integrated planning. It's very hard when they're getting these conf 
sometimes conflicting uh, signals. The next priority related to standards is to enforce the need of these agencies themselves to walk the talk in their own capital spending and incorporate these standards into their engineering designs. This is particularly urgent for the Department of Defense, but it's also important for the Corps of Engineers, the Bureau of Reclamation, the National Park Service, and other federal agencies that have pretty significant inventories of physical assets. The, the most challenging option is to implement is to make federal pre-disaster assistance to communities conditional on the community's consistency with these federal guidelines, uh, resilience guidelines. So to make that last option generally attractive to communities for the benefits that they'll yield, Congress could consider financial and procedural measures to incentivize the communities to adopt these standards in their pre-disaster planning and design. A lower cost and a less resilient project may not be the most cost-effective in producing the broader set of benefits that is sought by the community. That's what, what Sarah just told us. And finally, foundational to all these other options is a strong scientific and engineering base of research on how to actually do this planning and design of more resilient infrastructure and communities. It's hard. Communities are learning how to do it. Some of the big cities have the technical capacity and the sophistication to start getting their heads around this, but they haven't solved it either. You can imagine how much harder it is at the county level and some of the smaller community levels to say, we want to do the right thing, but what is the right thing? And so that depends very much on, the, uh, on, a, on a strong base of research and on de- long-term, consistent, high-quality data that will help guide their, their decision-making. Um, now, both research and data collection, it turns out, are incredibly cheap compared to the billions and billions of dollars it costs for any of these, uh, these infrastructure projects. So it's a good deal and, and well worth the, the investment. So to just bring this to a close, and I hope we'll, we'll bring it to a close on the presentation, but then open up a, a lively discussion with all of you, uh, we really want to leave you with two simple points. First, why spending now can help avert larger costs later and bring benefits to communities before disaster even strikes. And second, Congress has a great deal of leverage in its funding through its funding uh, and policies to incentivize states and local governments who are the ones doing the vast majority of spending on transportation and other, uh, certainly in other water infrastructure to start building more resiliency into their plans and capture these wider spread, these widespread economic, social, and environmental benefits that, that can accrue. So with that, I'll end, and we look forward to questions. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.